Welcome to Science Radio, a space where we chat about culture, belief, wellness, and current events, all through the lens of faith. Welcome to another episode of Signs Radio. My name's Jesse. I'll be your host today. I'm joined by Zanita. Hello, Zanita. Hello. And today we have the distinct honour to be joined on the podcast by Dr. Patricia Wirakun. Have I pronounced that correctly? Beautifully done. It's an <laughs> honour to be with you. It is such a pleasure to, to have you on the podcast if you've clicked on this podcast, you'll know we're talking all about sex and sexuality and all things relationship and sex today. And who better really to talk about this than the sexologist herself, Dr. Patricia? I I don't think I've ever met a sexologist before. Much less a subcontinental 76-year-old, right? I'm fascinated and I'm enthralled already. And and if you listening to this podcast aren't, I don't know what's wrong with you. I'm, I'm excited. So, Dr. Pat, would you be able to just quickly tell us a little bit about yourself, where this all started for you? It's probably a fairly colourful and involved story, but as much as you'd like to share, how did you get into this game in the first place? I love it when you call sex a game. It's really <laughs> something you want to play with, right? Okay, well, <laughs> let me give you the quickie version. I was born in Sri Lanka and I'm a Christian, went to a Methodist school there and then did medicine there. So my first training is in medicine. I'm a doctor. Then did I was teaching at the medical faculty, did my postgraduate study in Hawaii. I was working with the sexologist actually at that time. Probably one of the best known global researchers in gender. I was hmm. helping him run his, at that time we called it transsexual clinics in 1980. Went back to Sri Lanka hmm. for six years. I was the only sex therapist in the country, busy with 20 million population. And 35 years ago, my husband and son and I migrated to Australia. I've been an academic with the University of Sydney for 24 years. And the last eight years, I was director of a graduate program in sexual health. I retired in 2012 thinking, you know, do the kind of things that all ladies do in retirement, you know, my knitting and traveling. But I prayed to God and said, God, use me in retirement. And when you do that, God answers prayer. So I ended up by writing and speaking in sex and sexuality, mainly from a biblical point of view. So churches, youth groups, Christian schools. And so at the ripe old age of 76, here we are with you two young ones. I love it. I think a lot of people think that when you get old, that that's no longer a part of your life anymore, but you're just becoming more and more an expert. It's sex, Zanita. <laughs> Who would want to give up? <laughs> I, You know, on that, I do kind of find that funny because when I think of old people, I often assume that, oh, well, they're probably, there's a point in your life where you just, it's not as important anymore. But I think I'm discovering more and more that's actually not true. I'm not sure if that is a comforting thing or a slightly terrifying thing when I think of my grandparents and uncles and aunties and parents and what have you? 
I love it when I speak in schools. I can say everything about the chemistry and about God, but the one thing that cracks them up if I say, oh, if your grandparents are still alive, <laughs> guess what they're doing even now? That's something they cannot get their heads around. That mm. grandparents are actual sexual beings. But I don't think we want to go down there and talk about sex and aging. So maybe we'll leave that and say, yes, you can be sexy <laughs> and 60 and 70 and 80 and 90. So we'll leave it at that. We'll leave that for another podcast episode. That's maybe. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, so in this issue of Science Magazine, actually, Zanita has written an, an, an article about the, we're calling it the sex recession and as much as this is kind of a salacious topic and sex is in many ways right in front of our faces almost constantly in the 21st century, certainly in the Western world, there is a shift apparently that we are going through as a society where we are having less sex than ever. But I think maybe for the sake of our conversation, Dr. Pat, this has not been something that has happened in a vacuum. We could go a long way back as far as the history of sexual ethic, but would you just maybe be able to give us a some maybe the Cliff Notes version of sort of the major trends and the shifts that have occurred as far as the West, maybe not even just the West, but just the sexual ethics that have developed over the years? Because I feel like all of those things have led us to where we are today. And who else to ask but somebody who's been in the field for, oh gosh, since I was 26. Hey, so that's 50 years. Look, I actually would trace it back to our generation, the baby boomers. You know, we really cost it all. See, you and you are the result. So the reality is that, you know, when people talk of the sexual revolution, the baby boomers, Things that started it off, you know, the pill, it removes sex from procreation. And so then that was the first step. Sex then is about pleasure and fun rather than the danger of procreation. The next, we have things like no-fault divorce. What does that do? It takes away sex, procreation, marriage as a necessity. And so we go on down that line till we reach a time when the whole sexuality and even general life is removed from society and social meaning and community and the morality that goes with having responsibility to family and husband, wife. And comes down to what we are seeing now, and that is a culture that is driven by individual desires. So, mm -hmm. especially in the West, because there's affluence, and the, especially the baby boomers and the Gen Xers who followed were used to affluence, getting what they want, and that translates to desire. So it's what we call a radical desire-driven individualism. And if anyone there really wants to read all about it, I would suggest you go read something that Carl Truman has written. You can just Google him and you'll find out lots of podcasts and books that he has written where he teases out that how we have become like really a kind of 
selfish self-gratification. So in that context, sex has become the se an, a commodity, a commodity to be used for personal pleasure. Whereas in marriage, we made vows to care for the other, to honor the other. And of course, if you're a Christian and you read something like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it says your body is the, Holy, the home of the Holy Spirit, it's the temple, honor God with your body, which means honor the body of the other person. So that's now completely divorced. And it's all about my pleasure. This is really confusing because at one point, sex is a commodity to be used for pleasure. On the other side, sex is my very identity. And so if I have a label as any kind of sexual trance, any label like gay, lesbian, anything, that is my identity. And you need to affirm it. So we've got this very schizophrenic view of sex. No wonder everybody's confused. And the very body is now considered not something given by God as a gift, as created male and female, but something that's like a blank slate. And I can just like, you know, can mold it to whatever my pleasure is. So that's where we are now as a culture and a people. No wonder everybody is confused. Yeah, statistics show I was reading that 80% of people who actually learn about sex learn about it through television or movies. And then there's a small majority who learn about it through their peers. So it's like when you look at that, every movie or every television show or every song is saying something different. And then you look at the Bible and it's like vastly different again as to what sex means. So it makes sense that people are so confused about it. And you know, Zanita, interestingly, you said television and but the, the main drive unfortunately is social media mm. and pornography I mean the majority of young men today have been exposed to pornography they have we just take it as as a given and even girls about I think the research says 60 percent at least of young girls would say they were either watching porn or have been exposed to pornography. Now, that mm. raises a whole nother set of issues. But, you know, interestingly, I just want to drop this in here. We talked about, you know, the sexual revolution and this individualized culture that uses it. All the current research is coming across to say it is not working. Mm. It is not working. And this is not Christians. We are hearing secular researchers, and one of the people who writes, I think her name is Louise Perry, P-E-R-R-Y, Louise Perry, and she writes, she's written a book, I think, something about the failure of the sexual revolution or something to that effect. Maybe you could put it in the show notes or something. But she's, she says, she's not a Christian, but she clearly says the hookup culture isn't working, especially girls are extremely sad about not getting the commitment. The cohabitation, living together before marriage, it's not working. All the research says that when you live together and then get married, when you live together and get married, the marriages aren't working. 
That's the reality. Divorce rates are much higher. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just not working. Could, could it be, I mean, I mean, this is potentially a little bit above my pay grade to comment on, but is it partly a symptom of the hyper-capitalist society that we're that we're living in where everything is becoming more commodified not just sex you know we're seeing the disappearance of the middle class you know the rich are getting richer the the poor are getting poorer and there's an increased sort of pressure on people to either generate value for themselves or add value to somebody else all of that underpinned with the whole social media but you know that's very interesting you should say that because you look at all this stuff that we are talking about, you know, how individualism, and then you go to like the villages of Sri Lanka, which is where I'm from. Look, when you're looking, you're not sure about tomorrow's meal, what you're going to eat. You aren't really that concerned about even sex. Mm. You know, it's what's your priorities. and. Mm here in the west we are so faced with plenty and abundance and social media at the fingertips that it's just become one of these things of our life but sadly having said that you know you'd be i'd be we'd be driving through like the tea plantations of sri lanka which is where i was actually grew up and you find these tea girls who pluck the tea walking around with their mobile phones so we really can't say that social media hasn't spread throughout the globe. And therefore, mm -hmm. a lot of the trends we are seeing will be seen, if not already, will be seen in globally. Mm. Yeah, when I was researching my piece about the sex recession, I was asking people their thoughts and I was telling them, like people often ask me like what I'm writing about in the current, and I was telling them that I was writing about the decline in sexuality around the world and people's response was typically like what surely not obviously everyone is having probably like more sex than usual like with all the dating apps and you know with the rise of pornography it just makes sense that we would be increasing in our amount of sex and and you mentioned like the baby boomers kind of ushered in that revolution of sexuality but you also said that now it's not working and when I was researching, I came a lot of like speculations as to why. But I guess I'm kind of wondering as a sexologist, as someone in that field, like, do you have any thoughts as to sure. why that's happening? A lot of thoughts, but I'll give you a quickie version. <laughs> you see, there's no one particular thing we can put our finger on. It's a combination, but it's kind of this tipping point combination I think we've reached. For instance, all the research globally clearly says that there's an increase in anxiety and depression among young people. For instance, the Center for Disease Control, I'm just looking to make sure I get the statistics right in America, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Talk of an accelerating mental health crisis with four to five in 10 teens saying they are persistently sad or hopeless. And one in five saying they have con contemplated suicide and a sharp increase of loneliness, depression, self-harm. And this is interesting. Starting around 2012, now we tend to think COVID caused it. No. Mm -hmm. And what is the significant thing about 2012? 
it was when social media really <laughs> caught on the TikTok and the Instagram and everything around 2011, 2012, the teenagers got their crazy smartphones and, you know, into their hands. And here again, if you want anyone listening who wants to know more, the work of Jonathan Hayde, spelled H-A-I-D-T, and Jean Twenge, T-W-E-N-G-E. I love it when researchers have complicated names, isn't it? <laughs> Why can't they just have a name like Patricia Kamalini Virakun? It would be so much easier. But anyway, so, so you see, that availability, TikTok, Instagram, it seemed to tip it. And kids are anxious. So if you are anxious and you're depressed, look, your desire centers in the brain are naturally inhibited. So that's one reason. Look, if you're afraid, if you're running away from a, I don't know, a leopard. No, we don't have leopards, you know, whatever runs fast in Australia. If you're running away from it, you're not really going to be thinking of the next orgasm. Right. So your desire centers are naturally depressed. So that's one reason. Secondly, and this is really interesting, I've read very little, but just talking to young people, sex is no longer a sign of teen rebellion to the parents. Mm, you know, there was a time when, you know, parents would be horrified if a child, you know, has their boyfriend and has had sex. Now the parents are like, eh, so your boyfriend's staying, is it? Okay, you got your condoms, you know, you got your birth control pills. So it's no big deal, really. You're not rebelling. <laughs> so you've got to find other things to rebel about. And that, I think, is partly what drives the, the whole transgender phenomenon in young people. Mm. That it's, it's no longer, you don't need to have sex to be the cool kid. No big deal. So you've got to find something else to be cool about, like finding a gender label. And thirdly, and I think this is really important, is that there is a misunderstanding of what intimacy means. You see, as Christians, we know that we are created for relationships, created in the image of the Trinity, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, besties for eternity. And we are created in that image. So we are made for relationships. But unfortunately, in this social media instant gratification world, where a swipe right is all you need on an app to sort of say you like someone. And when, you know, dating has been reduced to sending an explicit text or a picture of your genitals to someone, the reality of intimacy has been lost. And to add to that, to add to that, we have pornography. See, again, there's a recent poll, I think, again, coming out from America that says there's a marked decrease in all the spheres of social life, close friendships, intimate relationships, trust, even community involvement. See, we have lost the ability to be intimate or even want intimacy. But we go for that disembodied online presence, which can truly never satisfy. Mm. 
So who wants to have sex? You mm. know, if sex is what porn says you should mm. be doing. Mm. I just want to quickly drill down on what you just said, because I, I don't want to misunderstand, but I, it just kind of shocked me. Are you saying that for some people, they've lost the ability or the desire to have or to be intimate with another person? What I'm saying is that we people have, we as a people, have lost the desire and even the ability to be intimate because wow. for a long time, intimacy has been related to intercourse, to sexual mm -hmm. intimacy. We don't know other ways of being intimate. Even now, I speak in schools and I have this little girl coming to me and saying, when I say little, we are talking like grade five, six, and saying, I love my bestie. Oh, I guess I'll be a lesbian. So I'm like, you love your bestie. That's called friendship. <laughs> yeah. You see, mm. we, from that young age, we've lost intimacy, the ability to build relationship. And this is one of the big problems when it comes to single people. Mm. Because in a culture, even a church, which can't fully comprehend that you can have close, intimate friendships that are not sexual, it's hard to build those relationships. Mm. You know, and that is what a big challenge for churches and mm. for the whole culture. See, mm. when I talk about intimacy, I talk about even for couples who are getting married, when I'm doing the sort of marriage, premarital stuff, I say, there are levels of intimacy. And for you as a couple getting married, the first and most important level is spiritual intimacy. Are mm. you able to relate spiritually? And that's with friendship. You know, the best friendships that I have and ever have had are people in my Bible study, in my growth group, because we shared that ability. Like, for instance, I meet one-to-one -one with a young lady who shares all her, but to me, I like, that's a problem. Yeah, I guess <laughs> when you're 27. But, you know, mm. that intimacy of spiritual reading and then, of course, playing together, discussing things then you get into the emotional sharing of feelings we don't talk about this mm. and building intimacy without physical intimacy i've noticed that the whole introvert extrovert thing has changed a lot lately and introverts it seems like there's so many more introverts now and a lot of introverts i feel like they you know they claim themselves an introvert and then they kind of excuse themselves from social interaction. And I wonder if that's like the same with intimacy with another human or like just friendships in general. Like are more people becoming introverts because they're more anxious and because of the whole like loneliness epidemic stuff or is that just an accurate? Again, I would say it's a combination. Mm -hmm. It's anxiety. Anxiety, like for instance, women, girls, what are they seeing? They get onto social media. And there is this comparative culture of the perfect body, the perfect woman. Who's the influencers they're following? When I speak to parents, I say, who are your children's influencers? Hmm. The best influencer they should be following is the Lord Jesus Christ. But if they can't do that, if they're not got that in their head, at least give them somebody whom they can follow. 
without the Kardashians or something. And so, you know, if that's who's influencing you, you you see all these, you know, curated pictures and, you know, bodies that are, you know, whatever, made it to look completely different to what they really are. And you think that's what it is. And then girls hit puberty. And puberty isn't exactly the most gorgeous thing, like, hooray, I've got my first period. So, you know, that's stressful too. And so when you do that, and then you're in this pornified world with the pornified expectations of sexuality. You know, recent research, Anita, you might have come across this. Like, I think in some American research, like one in four, I think girls have said that they had been choked during sexual activity. Wow. That choking, where did they get it from? Pornography. Right. I, I have had a girl tell me all sorts, girls tell me all sorts of sexual behaviors that are obviously porn. So when mm. girls are faced with this, why would they want to have, why would they want to have sex mm. you know why mm. when then that's the expectation and boys mm. unfortunately if you're watching pornography i mean i'm going into details on porn but it wires your brain such that only porn turns you on and a regular normal girl really doesn't turn you on so what do you have to have you have what they call the incels. I don't know whether you've heard them. Involuntary mm -hmm. celibates. Guys who are sitting in their mother's basements with playing the online gaming and avatars, misogynistic online games, violence. They don't know how to be intimate. Hmm. I was going to ask as well, how does vulnerability factor into all of this because it seems like there's a there's a link there between not being able to have intimacy versus our inability perhaps to be vulnerable with people around us i think it's partly partly it is the fact that we don't want to be vulnerable because true intimacy is to know someone and to be known so I think in this performance culture we live in, if we make ourselves vulnerable, then we are open to being judged. Mm. And let's face it, we live in a cancel culture. And anything I say, or you say, or any of us say, could turn out to be something that someone picks up. And so we are constantly self-curating Anything we say, self-judging our behavior, our attitudes, our words, you know, that's no way to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You know, that's marriage is clearly called a naked and no shame relationship. See, nakedness is vulnerability. No shame is I trust you, my spouse, because you have made vows to care for me. Now, that's not possible because we are always frightened that if we open ourselves, somebody will find something that they can get back to us. And so we just keep ourselves to ourselves and we mm. don't want to be vulnerable, which of course, then you can't be intimate. Mm. Mm. 
And it's it's easier. I suppose it's kind of like what you were saying before. We don't know what intimacy is anymore and we don't even desire it. And it's mm-hmm. I was when I was researching, I was looking a lot at the Japanese statistics because theirs yeah. are a lot uh, kind of a lot scarier because they've even <laughs> created new words that mean like sex is tiring. Like that's mm. how young men are viewing it these days. Like they'd rather just get involved in self-pleasure and get pleasure from robots and like pornography and gaming centers, like sexual gaming centers in Japan, then put in the effort to be intimate with a human because that's too much kind of. It takes effort. I mean, you know, going on a date, you know, courting someone, you know, when you ask a guy, asks a girl out, what are you doing? You are placing yourself in a vulnerable situation. Mm. Mm. It's better avoid it. That's what dating apps you know, you think that, you know, you can go out on a dating app and find someone. But that never works either. Because mm-hmm. dating apps are pseudo-intimacy of curated personalities. Like, how come nobody gets on a dating app and says, I'm a 40-year-old fat, ugly man? <laughs> I mean, all these gorgeous people <laughs> doing fun things. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the problem. You know, everything is that pseudo-intimacy. I haven't done a doctorate, so in terms of the uh, the level of difficulty, I can't really comment, but I will say as somebody who is married, it's got to be one of the possibly most difficult things that I've ever done. And I can only assume that my wife's level of difficulty with me has been tenfold what I've had to experience. But one of the things that we are seeing is a fall in the amount of people who are getting married recently. Can you comment on what is potentially going on there? I'm, I'm assuming there's a lot of threads that we've already talked about that are going to kind of come together in this in this piece. It's, it's again, as you said, a combination. But partly it's people putting off any form of commitment. Because, again, just like, you know, sex makes you vulnerable, commitment makes you vulnerable. So you just live together. You just shack up. You cohabit. But the problem, so what you think is that by living together, we have an out clause. But that's not really so. Because when you live together, you buy a house together, you buy a dog together. And then breaking up just gets harder and harder. But you just continue living together without making the commitment. And all the research tells us that the woman longs for commitment far more than the guy the woman is the one who's looking for it but then once you're living together he's like why should I bother I've got everything I want and then even when children come around sometimes when the child comes along they might get married but even there now you know and then you end up with single parent children which is again Mm -hmm. increasing so marriage has become something of this old world commitment. Who needs a piece of paper is what people would say. But when we speak to young people, I say, you know, God has given us a better pattern. And now the research is showing us that actually that works, that you make a commitment and then you get the covenant relationship and then have I say the three C's, you know, commitment, covenant, then coitus. You know, you follow that order. It really works. 
Mm -hmm. And there's another research, other research fairly recently from what's called the Institute of Family Studies, where they say that both girls and boys who have increased numbers of sexual partners before marriage is actually correlated with the divorce rate. And I think they say something mm -hmm. like seven or eight partners before getting married. And that's not a lot in today's you know, culture and get married, the chances of divorce are actually increased. Mm. You know, the Bible's told us, you know, that one man, one woman, married, monogamous marriage works. And all the research now is showing us that, guess what? It works that way. Mm. I recently met someone who used to work as an engineer for Tinder and he was telling me about how the things that are most often used as cues as to whether or not someone will swipe left or right are things like height, attractiveness, wealth and like job, which have zero correlation as to whether or not a relationship will actually be successful. And so I was wondering if you could speak into a little bit about like because obviously divorce rates are higher and marriages aren't happening enough more. But I think what we're seeing in our culture today is people are actually struggling just to find like a partner or like someone to date because, and we think that all of these apps are making it easier, but the statistics are actually showing that people are getting together less and people are finding it more difficult to find a life partner. You see, partly it's because our expectations are so high. You see, when we were young, when we were young, at the time the dinosaurs walked the earth, you know, it was like it, you didn't have a lot of expectations. You know, when I was in medical school, you know, all I was like, I don't want to marry a doctor because they're a pain. So I'm a medic. I don't want a doctor. I want a man with a nice smile and a mus musician and a Christian. So I wanted a Christian who had a nice smile and a muse and loved music. And, you know, everyone's reasonably good looking. I mean, you know, you've got to get out of bed like 10 years and look at that face. So, you know, reasonably good looking. But our expectations were not that high. Mm. Whereas today, in this sort of dating app culture with the sort of social media where you're shown the perfect guy, the perfect six pack, the perfect whatever. And guys are following influencers like, I mean, you might have heard of it, Jesse, like Andrew Tate or somebody whom all these young guys follow. Mm. I watched like one Instagram or something of his and I'm horrified. Yeah, a friend of mine who's a, a chaplain in a fairly large high school here in Sydney, he was doing a chapel talk or somebody else was doing a chapel talk. And at the mention of Andrew Tate's name, all the young boys were like, yeah, 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 yeah. And my friend is like, I know kind of who Andrew Tate is and I don't think much of him because, we, you know, we think he's a dirtbag. But these boys don't. They look up to him and we were kind of horrified that we're talking 12, 13-year-olds. I see that in every, almost every Christian school I go to, you know, that young boys. And so that's the misogynistic view they're developing. How are they going to be any kind of husband material? Mm -hmm. You know, this is the problem. We are just, we, and, and I put it solely back. I mean, schools can only do so much. Churches can only do so much. Parents. You cannot abrogate the education of your children to school or 
you know, and praise God if you have a Christian school, but to school or to the church, parents have to take the responsibility of training children from the time they are really young on relationships, on intimacy, on wise social media use, on media literacy. It is the parents' responsibility. Mm -hmm. Say, for example, like obviously that is the ideal. If there was like an individual listening to this who had just a confused view of sexuality in general, where would the best place for them be to go to learn about this? Because oh, obviously, gee, I, I say, by, look at my books. <laughs> we have a whole series of books, which unfortunately I don't have. Mm -hmm. But my husband, my son just handed me our latest book. They'll get my husband to pick that up for me. We just wrote, actually, I have not seen it. This is, you see that? You and oh, me wow. buy the book. We just wrote it. It's a picture book which talks about the body. And since I, that my favorite picture, I'll show you my favorite picture. How created in the Garden of Eden. Oh, that's and please beautiful. note we got a koala there. Amazing. We have a koalas <laughs> in the Garden of Eden. I told the girl who was doing the drawing, I want a koala, I want a kangaroo. So, <laughs> you know, this is for preschoolers. Yeah. Just to say God made you boy or girl. Mm. And you can play any way you want. You can do what you want with your life. But you will always be the beautiful body that God gave you. We have to start from this early age building mm. that knowledge that God has a good plan. And so we have books for like primary schoolers called Birds and Bees by the book for adolescents growing up by the book and for teenagers called Teen Sex by the book. And then we've got Talking Sex by the book, which is like for parents and carers. And so there's a lot of books, resources out there because if you go just to Google, you could end up on a site that is so, I don't know, liberal and misinformed that really you will be more confused than not. Mm. So I would say look for some good, especially if you're listening to this at a Christian or even if you're not a Christian, you know, find good books that give you truth about sex, relationships and marriage. I um don't know if my experience was similar to to many others i grew up christian and sex in my christian church sort of upbringing was definitely held with a certain amount i mean you know exactly what i'm talking about without even me having to say it. a certain amount of hesitancy or unwillingness to really truly engage and you know not everybody who's listening to this podcast is a christian and you know we have to be mindful of that but for those of us who did grow up in the church or are involved with church, what are some of the things maybe you would advise if you were sitting down with a church of how they could deal with some of these issues a little better? First thing I would say is that pastors, ministers, get knowledgeable. You know, just read, read something. I'll give you my books if you want, but just read it and be informed. Just know three things, really. The science, you know, how desire, falling in love, that sexual intimacy is a binding act. The chemicals in the brain bind 
people when they are sexually intimate. Know this, that desire is a feeling that can be controlled. This is science. So know the science. Know very clearly the word of God. Have the conviction that the word of God gives us a better picture for relationships and sex. And no surprise, science supports that one man, one woman bonding is actually good, as we've talked about the reasons. Thirdly, be aware of the culture. You are not sitting in a church silo. So this whole, you know, individualistic culture, the pressures kids are involved in. So pastors know, this, learn the science the Bible, which you probably did at theological college, but look at the sex and relationships and the culture. That's first. Second, empower your parents. Empower your parents. Like I do talks in churches. And the first thing I say is parents talks because parents have to be empowered. And they're shocked when they learn what's happening. Because parents don't know. Most of them just don't even understand that the apps that their kids have on the phone. Mm -hmm. You know, so parents must be empowered. Then the youth pastors, you know, if you feel like you can run some sessions with the young people, do it. But do it under guidance and mm -hmm. always informing the parents that you're doing it. Because it can be a very touchy and difficult subject, especially if youth groups have non-Christian young people who are coming along, which often is what we want to do. We want to encourage non-Christians to come. So we need to be very aware of that. So be empowered for yourself, teach, teach yourself, empower the parents, and then train up the young people in godliness and holy living. Sex is only a part of it. I know one of the churches I used to attend, they used to have this thing called TMI nights, which is basically stands for too much information. And so the women would all come together and it was like an open space for that conversation. And it was awesome. Like you had women from all ages come and share, which was really cool. But I think um, obviously like we're talking about in the church, for the people who don't have a Christian understanding, we have people listening who believe all sorts of things. Sometimes when people look from the outside of Christianity and the Bible, they kind of think that God is a bit of like a prude, like he, he's a bit of a killjoy and he's out of touch with humanity because of this whole, these rules around sex inside of marriage. And you've touched on this a little bit, but can you kind of explain like what is the biblical view of sex and what is God's view of sex? See, that's my favorite topic because everybody says God is such a killjoy. All he has <laughs> to say is just don't do it. Well, you know, not the whole Bible is a love story come to the Garden of Eden, like I showed you the picture, Adam and Eve. Adam, the perfect man, you know, like best six pack. Eve, like this is before the fall. So no <laughs> Botox, no boob job. And what happened? God puts Adam to sleep, does a bit of a prime rib job, and he brings Eve. And it's love at first sight. You know, I call that the first blind date ever. Because he opens his eyes and he's like, oh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, desire, love in the Garden of Eden. And through the Bible, we can trace that one man, one woman, love and adultery as the Israel and God's people breaking away. And right in the middle of the Bible, eight chapters of erotic 
romantic lovemaking between husband and wife. And like, you know, every sense is used in this sexual, sensual relationship. How beautiful is that? That the Bible, you know, even Proverbs says to the man, may your wife's breasts satisfy you ever be intoxicated with her love. I think it's Proverbs 5. But how exciting is that? The Bible tells us the husband to enjoy his wife's breast. That can't be a killjoy. And, you know, in Song of Songs, the woman says, love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding at the grave. It burns like a blazing fire. See, it's powerful. The Bible, the word of God has that. And that marriage metaphor is carried through the Bible till Revelation. When we hear of Jesus as the bridegroom coming to claim his bride, who says God's a killjoy? God says, have sex, make babies. That's the thing I made it for. But also have fun while you're doing it because it's meant for procreation. It's meant to bind man and woman together and brain chemicals, oxytocin, vasopressin, bind two people together and to be sensually pleasing to each other like Song of Songs. But you see, the Bible has a good story, but the Bible also tells us that you don't need sex to be happy. Mm. Sex will never satisfy you. No husband or wife will satisfy you. You can't look to another human being to satisfy you, whether you're a Christian or not. But if you're a Christian, I can point you to something like, I think it's Psalm 16, verse 11, which says, God in your presence is joy forevermore. Only Christ can satisfy. We look to social media and pornography and someone else. Nope, you can't get true satisfaction. And you can live a good, healthy life without sex. That's the wonderful thing. In our culture, part of it is that, oh, you know, I'm a failure if I don't have sex. Even in the sex recession, you're still a failure. But the Bible says, you know, singleness is actually a better state. The Apostle Paul clearly says, and singles can lead a full life. So sex is good. It's a blazing fire in the right place to bond man and woman. But hey, you can have a wonderful life even without sex. And even as a sexologist, I can say that. Hmm. Wow. Well, I got I to gotta admit, I'm a bit blown away right now. <laughs> I, I I don't I don't think I've ever I've ever experienced that 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 talk. It's certainly not in the in the context of of the church. And I think if there are people listening who are not Christians, maybe you've blown their minds a little bit as well, Doctor. That. That's um, exactly what we want to have: mind blowing <laughs> sex, as the Bible tells us. Man and woman, husband and wife, and mind blowing sex. God's oh. ideal. <laughs> And I'm trying not to look at my husband as he walks past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that might be a little too distracting for you. That's right. Um, I guess coming full circle, we talked about at the beginning of this, the fact that there's a lot more anxious people, there's a lot more lonely people, which is a result of, I guess, the sex decline. Um, and, and loneliness isn't like an easy thing to just like fix. Like obviously there's a lot we can do, but it's like a massive problem. And so like what... For those people who like 
are in relationships or aren't in relationships and are feeling that like loneliness, what would you advise them? Like, Don't turn to social media. Don't turn to pornography. If you can't find a friend you can talk to, find your local church. Find a community. And to all of you Christians, maybe pastors or whoever listening, let your churches be such that every person walking in will be accepted as community, as family. There are a lot of lonely people out there. Let us be Christians who reach out to every lonely person. And I, I say, you know, our churches, we need to be hospitals for broken people, for lonely people. For too long, we have been like five-star resorts for the righteous. We need mm. to be reaching out and welcoming people. So anyone who's feeling like lonely or disappointed or alone, please just find your local church, go visit, check them out. If the first church doesn't work, try another one. Find a community of loving people. It's been so good to have you on. I would like to get you on for a full series. <laughs> get you talking about more things, but it's been good just to have an hour with you today. So thank you for all your wisdom and, yeah, your good sense of humor. You're most welcome. It's been so, it's so wonderful, you know, when you're 76 to spend time with you guys who are like 50 <laughs> years younger than me. It's like, oh, old age. And she still can talk about sex. Yeah. <laughs> This episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A print subscription is $28 a year, or just $14 for a digital subscription. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. This is an Adventist Media podcast. 